Our Father, indeed, we find our utter and complete dependence upon the work that the Holy Spirit has begun and continues in our souls this very moment. Our, our worship is contingent upon whether or not He is alive and, and uh, applying His great uh, divine influence in our souls. And we ask for that now. We ask that we might be able to, by His influence, set aside all that which distracts us about the the past week or the coming week, that we can spend an hour, one hour, fixed upon those things that are eternal, those things that await us in eternity. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that what will go on here will please you, that what we have just sung and now as we pray and In a few moments, what is preached, and then as your people gather around the elements that symbolize the very cornerstone of our faith, the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ, might it all, might all of it, O God, please you. Might all of it give you great pleasure in heaven as we, your people, labor before the grand celestial audience of one. We've come, O God, to worship. We've not come to consume. We've not come to be entertained. We've come to pour out our hearts before the God who made us and the God who redeemed us in Christ Jesus. Our Father, everywhere else in our life, we are allowed and encouraged to be consumers here We want to be givers. We come to give you that which is due you. Honor and consecration and praise and thanksgiving, even confession. Hear us, O God, as we lay before you all over again souls that have been changed by the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit. And now, as he resides within us, might he lead us to a bit of a taste of what awaits us, things eternal. We pray, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Grab your Bibles, if you will, and open them with me to Isaiah chapter 59. Isaiah 59, and we'll read the first five verses of Isaiah 59. You follow in your copies as I read Isaiah chapter 59 at verse 1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he shall he will not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. <clears throat> your lips have spoken lies, your tongue has muttered perversity. No one calls for justice, nor does any plead for truth. They trust in empty words and speak lies. They conceive evil and bring forth iniquity. They hatch vipers' eggs and weave the spider's web. He who eats of their eggs dies, and from that which is crushed, a viper breaks out. The grass withers, 
and the flower fades. But the word of our God, it endures forever. I think most of you know that we're in the midst of a summer-long series on the subject of self-esteem. It, um, I, I have to admit that the easy part is really over. It doesn't take a whole lot of savvy to, um, to state the problem. <clears throat> but now the plot has thickened, ladies and gentlemen, because uh, before us now is not simply stating the problem, but stating the problem in such a way that we can devise a solution or recommend a solution. And that's what we're about to begin today. You've got to understand that's where we are, ladies and gentlemen. What I've done for the first um, three weeks is simply try to announce to you what I see as a problem. And I think so many of you agree. But now we've got to put things together in such a way that we understand it and can work to build solutions for it. We as the non, we as the Christian church are not the only ones interested in this subject, ladies and gentlemen. Let me believe, let me, let me assure you. In fact, bookstores are full of information written by the non-Christian world concerning this subject, and I understand their interest in it as well as ours. Uh, I would also even add that in some instances, the non-Christian world has done better work on the subject than we have than we as Christians have. I hope no one will hear me say throughout the course of this, the remaining weeks of the series that secular therapeutic techniques are totally worthless. Ladies and gentlemen, it was Augustine who said, all truth is God's truth. And some of that truth has been discovered by people other than Christians. So by no means am I suggesting that everything that the non-Christian world has produced is worthless. I am not saying that. They've helped us in, in, in many respects. But having said that, there are four, at least four, major areas of tension between the Christian gospel and the message of the Christian gospel and the secular understanding of self-esteem. That is, between, <clears throat> between what the gospel communicates as it relates to the subject of self-esteem, there are at least four areas, four major areas of tension between how the, the therapeutic world, the, the secular therapeutic world, would have us to understand and solve the problem as opposed to how the message of the Christian gospel would allow us to understand and solve the problem. Now, guys, do you understand what I'm saying? What I'm doing, in, in some measure, is comparing and contrasting a secular therapeutic approach. The reason I'm doing that is because so many of us have bought into that. That is, we've probably read more on the subject from the secular world than we have thought about what the scriptures has to say concerning the issue. I am saying that there are at least, and there could be others, four areas, major areas, 
of tension between the secular therapeutic approach versus the message of the Christian gospel and how it would encourage us to define the problem and solve it. Let me, let me list for you those four areas. And, I, and as I said, there's probably more. I'm just going to discuss four. And actually, this morning, because I, we're going to enjoy the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, we'll only have time for one. But let me mention the four. We'll look at the other three next week. The, the first area of tension is the influence and the reality of sin. The second area of tension is the Christian call to deny yourself. The third area of tension is the existence of moral absolutes. And the fourth area of tension is a salvation by grace and not via works. Now, those are the four areas of tension that I want to mention for you. But as I said, we only have time for one. And that is the influence and the existence and the reality of sin. Did you notice in my text, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I tried to emphasize verse 2, which states, Your iniquities have separated you from your God. One of the basic, the, the essence of sin, ladies and gentlemen, is it separates you from God. So when it comes to this first area of major tension, we're back to Genesis 3. Genesis 3 has really been the text for the first three messages where I have suggested that it was at the fall where self-awareness, self-consciousness became an issue. Now, so the first three sermons of this little series were based on Genesis 3. <laughs> Interestingly enough, what I tried to do is pick out some, some voices from the secular therapeutic world, read them, and find out what they had to say about the subject. This is one such example. Um, it was quoted very widely in USA Today. No, 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 no. U.S. News and World Report. And so as a result of being quoted in U.S. News and World Report, I picked up the book and um, have read it, or at least most of it. But one of the things that I found pretty early on, on page uh, 85, is a chapter entitled The Origins of Shame. The book is entitled Shame. And interestingly enough, it has a picture of Adam and Eve. Uh, covering themselves with fig leaves, uh, walking out of the garden on the front. But in chapter 5, when it comes to the origins of shame, this author suggests that Genesis 3 is a myth. Calls it a myth. Genesis, uh, Genesis and the creation myth. He goes on to say over here, or he goes on to blame the whole problem of self-esteem on the Genesis 3 myth. Now, guys, I'm not here to uh, attack Mr. Lewis. I'm simply trying to give you an example of the difference between how the Christian is to approach this problem as opposed to how the secular therapeutic world is approaching it. Very honestly, ladies and gentlemen, I think 
we're at the fork in the road. Um, in terms of the influence and reality and existence of sin, we are at the fork in the road. The Christian, uh, and because of the message of, uh, of the Christian gospel, is going to go down one of those tracks. The rest of the world, understandably, is going to go down another one. Gang, <clears throat> the, um, the idea of man having an, an intrinsic sinful nature is highly countercultural to the secular modern mind, the Western secular modern mind. The idea of us having a sin nature is really unthinkable. Now, I, I'm not saying that the secular world would not say that people commit sins. Uh, child pornography it would be a sin. And you see, interestingly enough, um, from the, uh, from the, in the media, the word sin being used, but they don't use it in the way that we use it. The idea of having a sin nature, um, that we were brought into this world with, it is just not tolerable for the, um, for the secular therapeutic world, guys. Now, here's my point. In contradistinction to that, I am suggesting that the Christian solution to this issue begins with an understanding of the existence, the reality, and the influence of sin. I, <laughs> I am saying that is the very root of the issue. This gentleman is saying that is not only a myth, but it is to be blamed for the creation of the problem. What the therapeutic world would consider the problem... I would consider the beginning of understanding the problem so as to provide a solution to the problem. Do you see the difference? That's why I've entitled this, ladies and gentlemen, the fork in the road. Because we're all interested in this issue of self-esteem. The non-Christian, the Christian. We're all interested in the subject, yes. But our analyses are worlds worlds apart. And interestingly enough, I bet you know more about what the secular therapeutic world is saying than you know what is said in here concerning the subject. I understand that. I mean, we're all looking for books to read on the beach in the summertime. So we wander into a, a Borders bookstore and we look at a book that looks to be something that might be very helpful to us as we wrestle with certain things and think about parenting and how we're going to deal with our teenagers and all that business. We grab that stuff down, we read that stuff, and we, and we know more about that than we do um, the influences of the Christian gospel on this whole subject of self-esteem. That's what I'm saying, ladies and gentlemen, and I want to suggest to you that at this very moment, you were at a fork in the road. 
You are going to have to follow one track or the other. There is a major point of tension between how we would describe it and solve it as opposed to the secular therapeutic world. And it all starts right here over this existence and reality and influence of sin. Now, uh, I'll, let you, I'll leave that to you, ladies and gentlemen. I'll leave you to choose the track that you want to follow. But let me offer you a bit of analysis and, and then we'll be together at the table. But gang, sin is, is um, when, when, the, when the Bible talks about sin, it talks about it in a couple of different ways. And I, I think you understand that. Um, if I could do it this way, you've heard this before, but sins, with a little s, sins proceed from sin with a capital S. We don't, we, we don't, we're not sinners because we sin, but we sin because we're sinners. At the, at the basic core of us, ladies and gentlemen, there is a nature that wants to recreate reality according to some cherished image that we have as to how reality ought to look like, what it ought to look like. Sin is not just um, those little white lies we tell or being rude to our neighbor. Sin is far more destructive than that, ladies and gentlemen. Sin is, is it, it, it rips and tears into the moral fabric of the universe. It is our decision to recreate life or reality in a way that we think it ought to be. And along the way of that recreation, we're going to have to tell ourselves some lies, probably lots of them. One of the lies that we have told ourselves in this whole pursuit of self-esteem is we're okay. Do you understand what I'm, what I'm doing? This, this, this whole idea of, of my sense of worth, influenced by the secular world, is to tell me that I'm okay. I'm really okay. When the Bible starts with a definition and a description of us that tells us anything but that. The Bible begins by telling us, at the root of your being, there is a principle. Not, not a peccadillo, but a principle that gives rise to, a, to events of sin. And it's that nature of sin that is so abominated in the secular world. So here's what I'm saying, ladies and gentlemen. Any idea of self-worth that does not factor in the ravages of sin are inevitably wrongly directed. You know, it is downright comical, in my opinion, I, I, I hope you don't read this book, but you're welcome to. It is downright comical how this man tells me to deal with shame. Uh, I, his solutions I, I, are, 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 in my book, comical. 
I am saying it is because he has chosen a track that does not factor in the ravages of sin. Sin is a problem for us because it's a problem for God. And the problem cannot be solved by uh, simply describing my problems as having low self-esteem. Gang, we feel alienated because we are alienated. That ache in the self is there because the self is not right with God. And that's what Isaiah 59.2 says. Before things are ever going to get any better, ladies and gentlemen, I must deal with this soul-devouring cancer called sin. And, you know, gang, part of the sheer glory and beauty and wonder of the gospel is that God has provided a means by which sin can be pardoned. But to ignore that as the problem is to lead you into all kinds of error. Secular therapies at best ignore sin. At worst, they downright contradict its existence, as did this man. So any sense of personal guilt, that's not, that doesn't exist. And um, thus we are told that um, any need for repentance is not necessary. And the only thing that we really need is more education or more therapy. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I'm not opposed to either one of those, either education or therapy. But I am saying whatever fix that they provide is only temporary if they ignore the ravages of sin in us. I want to read you just a little quote from Garrison Keillor. I don't know him very well. My children have really grown to love him. But this is just a statement from Garrison Keillor. You know the name. Um, he, uh, He says this. We're capable of doing rotten things, and not all of these things are the result of poor communication. Some are the result of rottenness. People do bad, horrible things. They lie and they cheat and they corrupt the government. They poison the world around us. And when they're caught, they don't feel remorse. They just go into treatment. They had a nutritional problem or something. They explain what they did. They don't feel bad about it. There's no guilt. There's just psychology. Gang, um, that point was affirmed by a Roman Catholic priest. story I read, a Roman Catholic priest who had... This was interesting language. He said he had confessed 50 people on one Saturday. That means he had met with 50 people in the confessional booth. And he had confessed 50 people. And he said not a one of them admitted to ever having sinned in any way. And he goes on to say, so eroded is our sense of sin that even in confession, you know, isn't that the place where sin is supposed to be confessed? That even in confession, being said by a Roman Catholic priest, even in confession, it often happens that people explain what they did 
rather than admit they did things that urgently need God's forgiveness. Gang, I'm simply saying that there is a fork in this road if we're going to deal with this subject rightly. And the fork lies at this issue of the reality and the existence and the influence of sin. Which way will you take? By the way, I've I've got to do something here that I think is going to confuse you, and I hate to confuse you. I'm confusing enough anyway. But at this point, I have to make the distinction between guilt and shame. This book uses those two terms interchangeably, but they are not the same thing. And the observations that I'm about to share with you came from Richard Kies. Dick Keyes, do you know Dick Kies? He runs the uh, um, uh, Labrie Fellowship here in, in the States. He's brilliant. But he's drawing a distinction between guilt and shame. Listen to this. Guilt is normally the emotional response to our violation of a moral norm. And shame is our disappointment with ourselves that we are not other than what we are. We feel guilty for what we do. We feel shame for what we are. A person feels guilt because he did something wrong. A person feels shame because he is something wrong. We may feel guilt because we lied to our mother. We may feel shame because we are not the persons our mother wanted us to be. Now let me try to explain why I took that in here. The, the reason I put that in here at this point, ladies and gentlemen, is when it, when it comes to building a solution for self-esteem, we're going to have to address both of those. Guilt and shame. We're going to have to address both of them. I'm going to have to address what I've done and what I feel. Here's my point. We must begin with what I've done. We must begin in our efforts to enjoy a sense of worth. We must begin with guilt that was brought on by what I did. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is called shame. Carl Rogers, which is a name very familiar to many of you, Rogerian um, psychology. Carl Rogers would suggest that if, I, if people just accept themselves, that they will be psychologically healthy human beings. But ladies and gentlemen, what if there really is something wrong with human nature? What if, what if we are being told to accept something that really is unacceptable? What if to accept ourselves that we must first deceive ourselves? Deceive ourselves into believing that I am very much okay when in fact I am very much flawed. I'm saying, guys, that an approach to self-worth 
that, that allows you or encourages you or enables you to draw conclusions about who you are without facing the fact that sin has separated you from your God is positively wrongful and hurtful both now and in eternity. If you are trying to come to grips with your own sense of worth before God and you skip the step that deals with your sin, ladies and gentlemen, you are on a fool's errand. Christianity states that repentance that arises from a genuine sense of sorrow over my sin must be an integral element of authentic self-acceptance. And, and if I skip that step, if I skip the fact that I need to repent of what I've done, I build my house, ladies and gentlemen, on sinking sand. Any solution that does not include the beginning step of repentance is doomed. So, <laughs> you see, what this man calls a myth and blames for the problem, I'm suggesting is our only source of hope. And I would call that a fork in the road, ladies and gentlemen. A, a viable, biblically-based, profitable, usable sense of self-worth begin with repentance. And by the way, if that word repentance causes you to stumble, look at it like this. Let's say that you've got an abscessed tooth and, and you go to an oral surgeon and you, he asks you to open your mouth and, to, and he pokes around in your abscesses and all that business and, and it hurts like the dickens. But it leads towards the whatever is needed to solve the problem. My, my point is, repentance is like a visit to a, to a specialist, ladies it may involve some pain, but it will ultimately lead to health. If you skip the step of visiting the specialist, repentance, there's always going to be an abscess in your heart that nothing will fill. I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, the glory of the gospel is that we can deal with the abscess. Let's pray together. Our Father, I, I do pray that your people will begin to rethink how it is that we view ourselves and begin to do so based on truths and principles that grow directly from your word. That we cannot and must not avoid facing the fact that because of sin we've been separated from you And that must first be remedied 
before we are ever to move on from there to something that's healthy and whole and profitable to both ourselves and others. Oh God, we do want to sense that there is worth in us. But oh God, might the worth that we sense derive from things that we find growing out of your word. We ask, oh God, for you to meet us as we seek to build our our own sense of who we are in the light of your promises to us. And now, Father, we come to a table and on it are emblems of that which was the was is emblematic of the the event that has made forgiveness possible to any sinner. The broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ is now to be eaten by us. And we pray, O oh God, that there we will find ourselves once again in the hands of the faithful specialist who will expose our sin and then promise us as he has in the past forgiveness forever. Holy Spirit of God, allow us to taste Jesus as we enjoy this sacrament. We pray, of course, in Jesus' name.